morning. My name is Jamie. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to you guys. Thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning, whether it's your first time, your hundredth time, or any number in between one and a hundred. Glad that you're here with us. Uh, this morning, we continue our journey through the book of Daniel, uh, a book filled with stories of lion's dens and fiery furnaces, a book filled with stories of great beasts of all kinds of shapes and sizes coming up out of the sea with horns big and small. It's a crazy book of the Bible. And my hope is that if you've been around uh, for any part of this series, that in the midst of this big screen zombie apocalypse, which is what it, it really is, that God has been awakening your heart in a number of unique ways to the beauty of the gospel to the beauty of a sovereign king who's seated on his throne, whose kingdom shall outlast every human kingdom, to a God who cares deeply about you and about me in the midst of both the highs and the lows, who walks with us through all of it. This morning, we take a look at one of the most difficult and debated uh, passages, not just in the book of Daniel, but in all of the Bible. Daniel chapter 9, the prophecy of the seventy. Weeks. If this is your first time, this should be really interesting. Um, if you come back for the next 51 weeks, making it a full year that you have spent time with the church gathered known as Cross Point Peachtree City, I would venture to say that the other 51 weeks will, will be very different from this week in a number of ways. Um, we're a church, I've said this before, I'll say it again who seeks not to skirt the difficult passages to, to jump over them, but rather we want to preach the full counsel of God's word. And what that means is that from time to time, we come upon a passage that causes us to go, oh, wow, this is going to be really interesting for the person who maybe has been uh, disconnected from the local church for the last five years, and they're coming in, and they get a passage like this to kind of sift through as their first run at this thing. And so if you walk away and you go, that was a really weird passage uh, but I'm willing to give it a second run. That's a win, I think. Um, and hopefully you're encouraged by the fact that we are willing to dive into even the most challenging and difficult of passages because we believe that it's all God's word and all of it is profitable for us. This is how you know that you're in a challenging passage of scripture. One of the guys that I've been following, a commentator and pastor, has been really helpful from the very start. I actually went to his website, church's website this week, Guess what the one sermon that's missing out of the series is? Daniel chapter 9. I, I don't know if, you know, maybe the, the microphone wasn't working well that week or the sound team didn't record the audio very well or if he came out of that particular sermon and even on the back end was going, I'm not sure that I just handled that very well. And so we're going to just cut that one from the website altogether. I, I have no idea. But what I do know is that we deeply need the, need the Holy Spirit's wisdom and guidance this morning. So uh, let me pray for us, and, and we'll jump in because we have much ground to cover. Holy Spirit, we do, in fact, need you. We always need you. But particularly this morning, in the coming moments that we have together, we pray for your wisdom. We pray for your guidance. We pray for understanding God, I pray for clarity and ability to communicate in a way that doesn't muddy the waters more, but actually causes us to fall in love with you more. God, for those who come in this morning who 
may openly and honestly profess not to be a follower of Jesus, as crazy as it may sound, I pray that this passage, the prophecy of the 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9, might be a part of their conversion story. And that many of us who already deeply love you, Jesus, would fall in love with you even more as we see the beauty of the gospel in this morning's passage. God, we need you desperately this morning. Father, we ask you to come through on these prayers just like we see you come through on Daniel's prayer in this very morning's passage. Would you do that by the power of your spirit? In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Daniel chapter 9. We'll be in the last eight verses, verses 20 through 27 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's really difficult to understand, take that Bible home with you for free as the church's gift to you. Uh, That way you can explore the truth claims of Christianity on your own time. You can grow in your understanding of the scriptures. That would excite us very much. So please... Take that with you. Beginning in verse 20, this is Daniel speaking. He says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So picking up where we left off last week, whether it's because in God's providence Daniel had Uh, a copy of the scriptures in hand and had flipped to the book of Jeremiah or whether it's because he had hidden certain passages of scripture in his heart, we just don't know. But regardless, Daniel finds himself uh, pondering the words of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah had declared that after 70 years of exile, uh, God was going to bring his people out of exile back into the land of Canaan. And for Daniel, the math adds up. It's been close to 70 years since Daniel was taken out of Judah into the Babylonian exile. And so Daniel takes that promise found in the book of Jeremiah to the Lord in prayer. We looked at that prayer last week, a prayer that not only includes Daniel's plea to God to fulfill his promise, but also Daniel's declaration of God's excellency and character, as well as a lengthy confession of his own sin and the sins of the people. Now we're told that as Daniel's praying, the angel Gabriel shows up. This is the same angel that showed up to interpret Daniel's vision of the ram and the goat in chapter 8, if you recall that vision. God sends an angel to meet Daniel in the midst of his prayer. Now, notice that Daniel says that the angel Gabriel came at the time of the evening sacrifice. At first glance, that appears to be a trivial detail, does it not? But, But remember, it's been 70 years since Daniel's been anywhere near the temple in Jerusalem. Daniel's likely in his 80s right now. It's been since he was a teenager that that would have been the last time that he was anywhere near an evening sacrifice. I think this reveals something about this man's heart, that he doesn't allow his circumstances to dictate his passion for the Lord. That though he finds himself in the midst of a pagan wasteland, his heart is still wrapped up in the worship of God. Not only... Uh, Has he not forgotten about Jerusalem and about the temple and about the sacrificial system? He also has this deep longing for the restoration of Jerusalem 
in the temple, in the sacrificial system. And so it's with a longing heart that Daniel prays, looking back at verse 19, that God would hear him, that, that God would pay attention and act, and God does just that. We're told that the reason God does so, verse 23, is because he greatly loves Daniel. That phrase, greatly loved, in the original Hebrew, actually means coveted or precious. That Daniel is precious to God. Now, I think that begs a similar question that we asked last week. How can that be? How can a man who acknowledges himself to be a sinner be declared by a holy, righteous God of the universe to be precious? How is that possible? What is the means by which God can simultaneously forgive sinners and vindicate his righteousness? Another way we could ask it in light of the wording of this morning's passage, what is the means by which God can declare sinful human beings to be precious to him without cheapening his justice? I think that's a massive question that begs to be answered. That question took us directly to the cross of Jesus Christ last week. Let's see where it takes us this week as we look at the remainder of chapter 9. God wants to encourage Daniel, whom he loves greatly, in the midst of Daniel's prayer. So God sends this angel Gabriel to tell Daniel just what he's going to do in response to Daniel's prayer. Verse 24, the angel Gabriel says this. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. As I mentioned before, this is one of the most difficult and debated passages in all the scriptures. This is where, this is where the charts and the graphs come out in full force. This is where the doomsday preppers crawl out of the woodwork, start buying gold and silver from Roslyn Capital because the end is coming tomorrow. I mean, this is where it starts to get really, really crazy uh, if you're not careful. My hope this morning is this. My hope is that we don't miss the forest for the trees, that we don't get so bogged down in the details that we fail to miss the big idea of this morning's passage altogether. Remember, when you read biblical apocalyptic literature, we talked about this a few weeks ago, the danger comes when we attempt to nail down every minute, sordid detail. It's a lot like a parable in that way. You can press a parable too much and completely miss the big idea of the parable altogether. First and foremost... We know that Daniel is pleading with God to make good on his promise to lead God's people out of exile after the 70 years are up. And according to the history books, we know that God did just that. Right? After the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians, right around the time Daniel praised this very prayer, we know that the Persian king Cyrus issued a decree that the Israelites be allowed to go back to the city of Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. What God is communicating to Daniel here in verse 24 is this. Daniel, I'm going to deliver my people from exile. Make no mistake about it. But it's going to take another, quote unquote, 70 weeks before complete deliverance will take place. Before complete salvation will come to bear. In other words, God's making clear to Daniel that deliverance from the exile itself is not the ultimate deliverance. He's giving Daniel a glimpse of the greater plan of redemption that is to come, which is why you get this language in verse 24 of finishing the transgression, putting an end to sin, atoning for iniquity, bringing in everlasting righteousness, sealing both vision and profit, anointing a most holy place. 
Listen to this quote from David Helms' commentary on verse 24. It's up on the screen. Very helpful. He says this. It seems that God, in veiled form, was showing Daniel things that anticipated the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus' work on the cross that finishes the transgression and puts an end to all our sin. It is his death that atones for our iniquity and brings in everlasting righteousness. It is his work that in the end will vindicate both the vision and the prophet. It is his bloodshed that anoints the most holy place, just as the priests used to with the blood of the sacrifices in the most holy place in the temple, thus securing eternal redemption for his people. All right, we'll get to that quote-unquote 70 weeks in just a moment. But I think the driving force of this morning's passage is this. Daniel, I'm going to deliver you from exile And it's right and good for you to care about the rebuilding of the city and the temple. But if if that's where your ultimate hope lies, if your ultimate hope lies in uh, the rebuilding of a temple made with human hands, if your ultimate hope lies in the reinstituting of a sacrificial system involving the never-ending bloodshed of animals, if your ultimate hope is in the reconstruction of an earthly Jerusalem, well, you're going to be sorely disappointed, my precious friend. And we know, we know that the post-exilic community was in fact disappointed in many ways. All you have to do is pick up a really good children's Bible to know this to be true. The Jesus Storybook Bible, the Big Picture Story Bible. If you look at the last story in the Old Testament before you shift into the New Testament, the birth of Jesus, what you get in that last Old Testament story is the post-exilic community and most of the elderly in that community you find weeping because the promises don't seem to have found their full fulfillment. Here's what we know about the post-exilic Israelite community. We know that Zerubbabel was of the Davidic line, but once he was gone, no king arose. We know that there was a temple, but it was nothing like the temple that Solomon had built. We know that Israel was not self-governing. They came under the governance of the Persian Empire. And ultimately, then you had uh, the Greeks and the Romans who, who took over. We know that the Ark of the Covenant had not been rebuilt. And we know that many of the vessels of the temple were likely not restored to the temple. People who lived between the Old and New Testament eras still talked about being in exile. That was their perspective because the glories of the past were not being fulfilled in the wake of the return to the land of Canaan to rebuild the city and the temple. Which is why, which is why I think it's so incredibly kind of God to respond to Daniel in this way. To say, I'm going to deliver you from exile There's going to be a rebuilding of the the city of Jerusalem. There's going to be a rebuilding of the temple. There's going to be a reinstituting of the sacrificial system. But that's not the ultimate hope of redemption. I'm going to do something far greater, Daniel. I'm going to execute a, a plan that will allow me to declare you precious without cheapening my justice. Verses 25 through 27 give us a breakdown of the plan. Okay, This is the mission impossible moment. This is what God's going to do. Let's read through the rest of this morning's passage, and and then we'll come back and we'll attempt to make sense of it verse by verse. Verse 25. Know, therefore, the angel Gabriel says to Daniel, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. 
desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. All right, you got that? We can all go home now, right? We all understand Daniel chapter 9 and its fullness. My seminary professor, a man well-versed in the Old Testament, far more well-versed than me, declared these verses to be clear as mud. So I'm in trouble. I face a great dilemma this morning. Um, There are a number of interpretations to these verses. Um, In fact, many people that I quote on Sunday morning All brilliant scholars all disagree with each other. They can't seem to come to the same conclusion. So many interpretations, some of them so intricate that we don't have time to cover all of them. Some of them have to do with the position of the moon, the question of leap years, the difference between a Gregorian calendar and a Julian calendar and a Jewish calendar. Scholars and theologians have spilled a lot of ink over these four verses. And many of them, after articulating their position, uh, all of the disagreeing positions in their commentaries, go on to declare, I could be wrong. So what do we do? Well, many of you know how I typically prefer to handle the less than clear passages of Scripture. My preferred method is to put all of the views in front of you and then to say, this is where I land and here's why, and then to extend charity to you in allowing you to come up with your own conclusions If it's not gospel for me, why in the world would I expect it to be gospel for you? But again, the problem is that I don't have time to unpack every one of these possible interpretations uh, this morning. So so here's my plan. If you'd like to study this further on your own time, I can get you some resources that I think will be very helpful to you. Um, There are some really good free online lectures connected to Daniel 9 that you can listen to. In fact, my seminary professor himself has free online lectures for Daniel 9. He goes through, I believe, seven different possibilities of how to interpret verses 24 through 27. If you're interested, this might be the most dangerous thing I've ever done. Throw my email up on the giant keynote screen there. Uh, You're more than welcome to email me, and I will get you resources so that you can have your your own studious uh, attempt at understanding this better for yourself. Um, But here's what I'd like to do with the allotted time that we have this morning. Um, I'm going to give you what I think are a couple of the most viable interpretations. That way you get a little more than just the single best interpretation from my vantage point. But at the same time, we avoid turning this into a seminary lecture, which I think you'll all be appreciative of. So I hope that's okay. That's the best I can offer you this morning. That being said, first and foremost, if you believe this is a messianic prophecy, a passage of scripture meant to point to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ himself, then you really only have a handful of options. Things get narrowed down very quickly just on that issue alone. And I do, I personally believe this is a messianic prophecy. Um, Simply for no other reason, going back to the list of promises in verse 24, finishing the transgression putting an end to sin. We sing of that often, don't we? Upward I look and see him there who put an end to all my sin. Atoning for iniquity, ushering in everlasting righteousness, sealing both vision and profit. The the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter one, in these last days, God has spoken to us not by the prophets, but by his son. The anointing of a, a most holy place, Christ himself, the true temple. I believe this is a messianic prophecy 
based on this list in, in verse 24, which that David Helm quote from earlier sums up really well. Within that messianic camp, there are a couple of ways to look at, at these verses, and those are the, the, the possibilities I'd like to lay out for you this morning. One is to consider all the numbers that you see in this passage to be symbolic. So you got these quote-unquote 70 weeks, right, which are broken down in verses 25 through 27 as seven weeks and 62 weeks and one week, which even if you're the most terrible human being on the planet at math, you know adds up to what? 70 weeks, right? So some would say that these 70 weeks are meant to be symbolic. They're they're meant to communicate uh, completeness, complete deliverance, complete redemption. It's the kind of language Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 18 when he's talking to Peter and Peter comes up and he says, uh, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me uh, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? After forgiving seven times, Jesus? Then Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, what, what is Jesus doing there? Is Jesus saying, when you get to number 78, you're off the hook, brother. Like you can stop forgiving people when you get to that number. Of course not. Jesus' words are symbolic there. He's uh, referring to this, this idea of complete forgiveness. Some believe that's what's going on in Daniel chapter 9, that the 70 weeks is symbolic of Again, of complete redemption, complete deliverance. And so for those in the symbolic camp, it's not so much about getting the dates exactly right. Rather, it's about looking at these spans of time. So you have this seven weeks, and then you have a longer amount of time, 62 weeks. And then you have this brief amount of time, one week. And so this is perhaps one of the only times that you'll ever see me throw a chart up on a keynote slide. But hopefully this this helps to simplify and clarify Uh, what I mean by this. Many of those in the symbolic camp argue that that first block of time, the seven weeks, is the time uh, between the decree that Cyrus uh, instituted to send the Israelites back uh, to the land of Canaan, leading up to uh, the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the city and the city walls and the reinstitution of the worship of God. Under this view, then, the 62 weeks would be that time of Ezra and Nehemiah leading up to the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. And then that last week would be the the life and death of Jesus, and and then also the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So let's run that interpretation through the grid of verses 25 through through 27, and and I think it'll start to make sense. I'm actually going to put these verses up as we go through them underneath that graphic just to try to make it even more simplistic. Verse 25. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. So this symbolic seven weeks begins with the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, which those in the symbolic camp argue is Cyrus's decree to send the Israelites back home. And you have this symbolic seven weeks ending with the coming of an anointed one, a prince, which those in this symbolic camp believe to be the anointed priest, Ezra. Now we get into the second span of time, the 62 weeks. Verse 25 goes on to say, Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So here you have a rebuilt Jerusalem, uh, but also a troubled Jerusalem. Going back to what we talked about earlier, this post-exilic community knew that something wasn't quite right, that they were without a king. They had a temple, but it it was nothing like the temple that Solomon had built. 
They weren't self-governing. In fact, they had to deal with Alexander the Great and eventually the cruel God-hater that we talked about a few weeks ago, Antiochus Epiphanes, the man who massacred tens of thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem, a man who set up an altar to Zeus in the temple itself, a man who put an end to the offering of uh, sacrifices to Israel's God, a man who established a forced paganization program in an attempt to destroy Israel's faith altogether. I mean, this was undeniably a troubled time for the Israelites, though the city and the temple were rebuilt. And so according to those who adhere to this symbolic view, the 62 weeks would include the time from Ezra and Nehemiah to the time of Jesus. And then verse 26, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood And to the end, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So here you have the final week, which those in the symbolic camp believes refers to the death of Christ and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. In this view, Jesus is the anointed one who shall be cut off. The prophet Isaiah actually uses that language to describe the coming Messiah, one who would be cut off, Isaiah says, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of God's people. The prince who is to come then is argued to be Titus, the Roman general, uh, who destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. There was a lot of bloodshed, which would explain the language of, the, of a flood. Also in the Gospels, Jesus refers to the coming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in, in 70 AD as the abomination of desolation. Here in verse 26, you get that desolation language. And in verse 27, you'll get the abomination Language And so the, the final week would include the death of Christ and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. You guys all tracking with me, right? Verse 27 goes on to say more about that final week that we encounter in verse 26. It says this, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. In this view, the one who shall make a strong covenant with many is Jesus. Going back to verse 26, the anointed one who shall be cut off. We talked about this last week. Jesus established a new covenant in his blood, a covenant that we celebrate every time we take communion. The language of putting an end to sacrifice and offering goes back to what we talked about a couple weeks ago. When Jesus died, the curtain was torn. The sacrificial system was done away with and replaced by Jesus' perfect sinless sacrifice Uh, his life and death on behalf of sinners. Toward the end of verse 27, you see similar language to what you saw at the end of verse 26. The coming of one who shall make desolate. Again, a reference to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Roman general Titus. So so there you have it. That's the symbolic messianic view. Do what you will with that. Now, there's another camp that argues that these numbers are not symbolic at all, that they are literal numbers, that you can actually do the math and that the math adds up on the calendar of human history and involves taking that language of 70 weeks, quote unquote, to mean 70 sevens, which is actually really orthodox. The word translated weeks in most of your Bibles really does literally mean a period of seven. So it very well could be 70 sevens and could be referring to years rather than weeks, which makes a whole lot of sense because none of these things could have come to their fulfillment in a matter of 70 weeks. So under this view, you got 490 years. Chart number two, 
Last time you're going to see a chart from me for a while, okay? But if you think the math is cool and, and that the math adding up affirms the inerrancy and perfection of God, this is kind of neat to think about, okay? So the, the idea under this view would be that the first seven weeks, seven sevens, is the time from 457 B.C. Um, where uh, Ezra was sent uh, to be a part of the rebuilding of the city, that it wasn't Cyrus because Cyrus was told to rebuild the temple, not the city. So we begin with Ezra, 457 B.C., leading up to the time that Jerusalem would have been rebuilt, 408 B.C., that that middle span of time, the 62 weeks, the 434 years, would go from that 408 B.C. point in human history, leading up to 27 A.D., the time that Jesus was baptized. And then the last week would include Jesus' ministry and death and would end in 34 AD with the stoning of Stephen, which obviously was also a moment of bloodshed. There was a flood of blood that was spilled by Stephen as uh, the gospel to the Gentiles began to go forth. Remember, the apostle Paul was on the scene as Stephen was stoned in that moment. Now, listen, I'm not married to either of those interpretations, and I think they're the best ones. So that tells you a lot about this passage. I think those are the two most plausible possibilities. Again, if you don't like that, email me and I'll get you more information so you can come to your own conclusions. There are advantages to the the symbolic interpretation in that we don't have to square away the math perfectly, but it's also really cool if that math adds up. Um, Regardless of where where you land on this, here's the deal. It doesn't change the significance of the gospel implications of this passage. So, so let me go there for a second so that we don't get bogged down in the details so much that we miss the big idea altogether. Again, so that we don't focus on trees so much that we miss the forest. Going back to Daniel himself, the angel Gabriel tells Daniel that he's precious to God. How can a man who acknowledges himself to be a sinner be declared by the holy righteous God of the universe to be precious? What is the means by which God can declare sinful human beings to be precious to him without cheapening his justice? And the answer, once again, is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the only way, the anointed one who would be cut off so that we might draw near to God. Going back to verse 24, and going back to that David Helm quote, it's Jesus' work on the cross that finishes the transgression and puts an end to sin. It's Jesus' death that atones for our iniquity. It's Jesus who ushers in everlasting righteousness. It's Jesus who is God's final word, sealing the vision and the words of the prophets. It's Jesus who is the anointed Messiah, the true and holy temple of God. Looking at verse 27, it's Jesus who establishes a new covenant in his blood in order to redeem covenant-breaking rebels like you and me. It's Jesus who put an end to the sacrificial system by the sacrifice of himself on behalf of sinners. Ultimately, it's Jesus who makes a way for sinful human beings to be declared precious in the eyes of God, which is quite amazing. If you're a Christian, you're precious to God this morning. He loves you deeply, just like he loved Daniel. You are his beloved child with whom he's well pleased, not because you're impressive to God, but because Jesus is impressive on your behalf. That, that might be the very thing that most of us in this room need to bask in more than anything this morning. Not the charts, not the graphs, not the mathematical calculations, but in a God who at great cost to himself has made a way to declare you precious in his eyes. It's unbelievable. If you're not a Christian, My hope is that you look at verse 24 and you find yourself longing 
for these promises. That you see the beauty of how all these promises are, are fulfilled in Jesus. That we can't save ourselves, but God has made a way where there is no way. That Jesus lived a life that you and I could never live. A perfect, sinless life. He died the death that we deserve to die. He was cut off, the anointed one, making atonement for sin. Our sins were put upon him and he was punished in our place. And it's in turning to Jesus in faith that you can be declared precious in the very eyes of God. And that's a prayer that God is certain to answer just as swiftly as he answered Daniel's prayer in chapter 9. That's a prayer that God loves to answer, the cry of faith to save. This passage is littered with gospel implications. It really is amazing. And it's a passage that reminds us of a couple of things as we close this morning. It reminds us, first and foremost, not to put our hope in religion and ritual. Daniel longed for the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. He longed for the rebuilding of the temple, the reinstitution of the sacrificial system, all good things. But God declared to Daniel, I've got something so much greater for you, a greater plan of redemption, of salvation that is to come, and his name is Jesus. In our present day and context, we have our own religious rituals, do we not? Things that we tend to trust in as a litmus test for how God feels about us. Church attendance, community group participation, Bible reading plans, financial giving percentages, the number of serving teams that you're on and on and on we could go. All good things, right? Just like the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple was a good thing. But we're talking about things that are meant to be in response to who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Acts of obedience compelled by his love. It's so easy for, for even us Christians in this room to default into this way of thinking that correlates God's love for us with our performance. Is it not? I do it all the time, veering into that dangerous ditch. There is no amount of performance-based boxes that we can check that would cause God to be impressed with us. There's just not. He's impressed with us because Jesus is impressive on our behalf again. There's nothing that you have done. This is critical. Wrap your mind and your heart around this. There's nothing that you have done that would cause God to love you less and nothing that you can do that would cause God to love you more. You are loved perfectly in Jesus Christ. Our hope is not in our performance. Our hope is not in modern day temples built by human hands, i.e. church buildings. Our hope is not in modern day sacrificial systems, i.e. church programs. Our hope is in the promised Messiah who came to rescue us from our sin and ourselves. God had a plan not just to rebuild a city and a temple, but to make his people temples of the Holy Spirit. God had a plan not to overthrow Roman rule, but to overthrow the enslavement of the human heart. So ask yourself, where is my hope this morning? Where do I see myself veering off into that ditch that that wants to connect my performance to how God feels about me it's Christ's performance on your behalf that's how God feels about you this passage reminds us of another thing not just to not just the issue of putting our hope in religion and ritual but it also reminds us that God is not finished he's not done with his plan of redemption 
When you read verse 24, it's encouraging to think that Jesus fulfilled all of those promises in some sense. Already, Jesus has come to rescue his people from sin and death, to atone for sin, to usher in everlasting righteousness. We can celebrate his first coming this morning, and we will as we receive of the elements in just a moment. Um, But verse 24 also has this not yet element to it, does it not? We don't live in a world that's absent of sin altogether just yet. We don't live in a world filled with the fullness of everlasting righteousness. But there is coming a day. All of those things that make the world sad, all of those things that make the world broken, all of those things that make the world disjointed, all of those things that make the world ugly will be eradicated, done away with forever. As Daniel longed for the first coming of Christ, so we can long for the second coming of Christ. As Daniel longed for the the rebuilding of Jerusalem, so we can now long for the new Jerusalem. A city that will shine with the brilliance of God's splendor forever. No more chaos. No more pain. No more sorrow. No more death. Safe in the arms of our Father forever. Never to struggle with sin ever again. Amen? We can bank on the promise of Jesus' second coming to make everything sad untrue just as surely as Daniel could bank on the promise of Jesus' first coming to rescue sinners. And so I invite you this morning to celebrate Jesus' first coming, the fulfillment of Daniel 9, but also to hope for, to long for with great anticipation, his second coming. And to point as many people to Jesus as you can in the in-between. When Jesus returns, it's going to be a party like nothing we've ever seen before. Let's invite as many people as we possibly can to that eternal throwdown, shall we? In a moment, we are going to receive of the elements. Um, We take the bread here and we dip it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. It is a celebration of Jesus' first coming to redeemed sinners like you and me. We get an opportunity to celebrate that very visibly. And in doing so, Paul says that we proclaim Christ's death until he returns. So there's even a missional element to the receiving of the elements as the church. And so my prayer is that in the coming moments that, that we would slow down for a moment to wrestle with those questions of where, where am I trusting in my own performance, defaulting back into that mindset rather than believing the gospel do, do I really find myself celebrating the person and work of Jesus who made a way where there was no way so that I, uh, a covenant-breaking rebel, might de- be declared precious in the sight of God without cheapening his justice? Does that blow my mind in the same way that it once did? Let's sit with that, and then let's also think about that day that's coming and celebrate it with great longing and anticipation. There is coming a day when every wrong will be righted, when Jesus returns to make everything sad untrue. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.